Well, welcome to my home, Millie and M. Tume. Thank you uh, for having us. M. Tume, you've seen my place Thanks, before mm-hmm. in our uh, Harriet and Parasite podcast. Yeah. But Millie, first time here. How do you how do you like my new place? It's great. Classic welcome. East Village apartment. Yes, I, I live in a weird apartment in Bushwick. It's very, it's a different kind of apartment than this, but. This is a very comfortable, familiar type of space. Yeah, this is like old. This is old school. Yeah. Yeah, les vibe. Yeah. So, how are you guys at Thanksgivings? Relaxed and good. The best way Thanksgiving should be. You should like. I, I had one phone argument with a family member, member about politics, and then after that, I said no more craziness and was relaxed with good food. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, as I was telling you guys, I cooked for twenty five at my sister's place in Jersey. Uh, you, how how big was your turkey? You were telling us. How heavy it was. It was 21 pounds. The rule of thumb is usually one pound per person. And you had like 25-ish people, so that, that worked out perfectly. Yeah. You know, I've toyed with the idea of maybe getting like catering equipment, you know, using sternos and stuff wow. like that. But that's, that, that would like be like a far. whole other level. So, that's and I don't think stress. it's, I don't think it's totally necessary. So. Yeah. At that point, you got to start like charging admission at the door. Like. <laughs> exactly. He's <laughs> like, you need to pay for some of this. <laughs> All right, so as I was telling you guys, um, we're doing this pod a little earlier today because later I'm going to go see Frozen 2. I've never seen Frozen. Oh, my God. What I, a... I've never seen it. I, you know... So un-American. It is very un-American. <laughs> I think what it is 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 um, I'm, a, I'm an only child. I don't have nieces and nephews. I've never had to, like, take young people to go see these movies. I have never seen all of Frozen. Really? But I've seen clips of it because my nieces, who are three and five, are completely obsessed with it. And when it came out, I mean, it's like kryptonite for children. Like, I bet they have an algorithm that figured out which like color combination grips like little kids eyes the most or some some shit like that i know they use um like child psychologists and child therapists in the with with those movies when it comes to like plot themes and even like color palette and scheme and visuals because i've seen these old documents from like back in when disney used to hand draw cartoons it's it's kind of like how to draw a sympathetic character yeah versus Mm. like a villain Mm -hmm. so by now um with data and everything they must have it down to quite a scary science and there's some independent contractor out there who was a child therapist for 20 years who now their job is to work for disney and give them the, the latest data research i'm sure there is that person out there i actually don't think let it go is a very good song it's just very irritating mm-hmm. and bombastic uh but i like the other song um do you want to build a snowman i thought that was a very nice song all right should we get this pod started let's do it all right escape from plan a Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Oxford Kondo. Today, I'm joined by Mtume. What's up, Mtume? Peace, peace. And Millie. Hi. Mtume, at this uh, at this point, I don't even know if we should like put you as like featuring guest because you've appeared many times. Aww. We hung out, hang out all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've. You might be upgraded to not even worth a mention. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's, that's like the first time not being talked about is actually feels good. Yeah, so. That's right. Yeah, thanks for coming on this uh, Thanksgiving for Sunday. Sure. Um, it's quite a dreary us. day, actually. It was hailing and yeah. raining. I really uh, hope the best for people who have to travel today. It doesn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Not looking good. No. Oh, shit. Is it snowing? It's like, it's like those sleeting. 
it's it's like it's like hard snow pellets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like slapping you in the face. It's right. It's, it's, you can physically feel it. It has yeah, like, like real <laughs> mass. It um, makes noise. Like corners. Yeah. You can feel the corners. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we wanted to. I, I want to bring you guys on because you're our like film culture uh, experts and aficionados. And uh, this past week, the New York Times. Uh, I'm too amazed. You uh, you said it. They're, they're uh, really on a roll, right? Yeah. <laughs> New York Times. All right. Let's dive into the first article. I saw you getting very uh, passionate about this on Twitter. Uh, this thing about Drake and uh, sing rapping. I'm not the. I know like two Drake songs. Mm-hmm. I'm not really into. I guess contemporary hip hop that much. Yeah. So I really don't know what this is about. Millie, do you do you really know what this is about? Well, I read the article. Starting from let's start with the title. Right. You know, I have this whole issue because I just don't think of Drake as a rapper. I don't think of Drake as a rapper. I don't think of him as I don't think of his music as being hip hop. Please tell me I'm not the only one. You I'm too many Phillipson. I'm you know I mean, I, I would say he's like, I would say he's he's a, he's a pop artist who uses rap and hip hop elements. So if you get a, he's a hip hop artist, right? It's, it's what yeah. I it's what I would say. But that's like he's not like hip hop in the sense that people will get very angry at me for saying this. Um, he's not hip hop in the sense to me of like, in like a classical sense. But um, no, he's absolutely a pop, he's a, he, not. But he, he's he's a pop artist, and he 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 serves pop convention. I mean, First and foremost. keep in mind, I, I grew up, you know, in the 90s, idolizing Tupac. Right. So my bar <laughs> is high. Yeah. But I remember when Drake's first album came out about 10 years ago, and there was an article in the New York Times, actually, about how Drake was the new face of hip hop. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So I downloaded his album and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what this is, but it's not hip hop. Yeah. I mean, I would call it maybe like similar to R and B, but I don't want to insult R and B. Yeah, I just I I don't I don't know I don't get it. Like you say Drake to me, you yeah. know his name. He's like a non-entity to me because I don't like his music. Mm-hmm. Hotline Bling might be one of the dumbest songs to <laughs> ever be a hit, guys. Ever. No, I think they made that music video uh, so that people could gif it, right? Yes. Guys, there are like fifteen words in that song, maybe yeah. total. Yeah. And I just, I find his preoccupations to be so, like, mundane and petty. Yeah. It's like, oh, you uh, used to call me and now you don't. Like, who cares? Wait, wait, Millie, for someone who doesn't listen to Drake that much, what are his preoccupations? I guess girls maybe he's like he's he's he has this 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 weird persona where he's the, and i'm not a drake expert i'm not i'm not by, either so I, I can't stand his music as well hesitation. but he has this uh persona where he's the he's always talking about women in this kind of you know girl um if you just get it together you know you'll be able to meet me where i'm at you know it's like he's he's like always giving these like these weepy lessons yeah, to women like, in in his in in his stuff, you know, it, it's it's like this. It's, it's it's the fake. It's this. It's the fake sensitive like thug type of thing. It's really kind of corny. Yeah, that you know, Drake comes from privilege. No, yeah. I mean he was like an act. He grew up in the industry. Mm-hmm. He was an actor. He was on Saved by the Bell. Yeah, for Christ's sake. Wait, he was Not on Saved by the Bell. He was on. A, a, a you mean Degrassi? Degrassi. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, he could have been. He could have been guest on right. Saved by the Bell, but same diff. <laughs> same difference at uh, a certain point. You know, and for me, it shows like his music is very much about, you know, entitled on we. Yeah, I think. You guys heard the the Pusha T diss track, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I listened to that definitely. I've heard of it. I haven't oh, you actually listen to listened it. to it. Yeah, it's I, funny. I, I don't I know. 
I don't know the standard of harshness on this diss tracks, but ba- seeing reactions from people, it was one of the like co- most cold-blooded, harshest diss tracks. I, I'm to me, is that right, or are people overreacting? I don't think. I think like there's been some harder like diss tracks, like old school Ice Cube when he when he went at N.W.A. Common when he went at Ice Cube. You know, Tupac, his thing. You know, those. Are, I, I think I think the reason why the Pusha T thing um, really jumped off is because Drake had those two battles, or that that one battle with Meek Mill that like Meek Mill just didn't survive and. And it's like Drake won a battle. How how is how is this possible? Especially <laughs> someone like me, I'm like this is this is world is gone insane. What was the battle about? Oh, I can't even. You know, I honestly can't even remember. Like it's it's to me the, the way rap has become so WWF or WWE if you want to keep it right now. I can't even keep up. It's I I actually think they do it to stay relevant. Well, yeah. That's and it's like it's not it's no one's heart is no one's heart is in it. So I I, I didn't even know. And then the push a T thing, like I, I actually don't even know what that's about. I would need someone to come in here and tell me. But yeah, it has something to do with Kanye. I don't know. It was like I obviously I don't, I'm not the most. It's fluent. so weird. It's I think I think also it's like it's it's so social media driven and like stuff yeah. driven. And like I don't I don't really follow that stuff anymore to the point where it's like when it happens, I just kind of watch the the residue. <laughs> it's like i watched the blast uh <laughs> fragments you know the building that's already been torn down after the bomb hit yeah well, like we, we you now have like Shaq doing uh rap feuds with damian, like, damian lillard. lillard that's damian funny. lillard's feuding with who's who's that guy from the phoenix suns um marvin he, bagley I he think. is yeah and I, I think it's marvin bagley um and apparently bagley's a pretty good rapper too like so he's with like, the kings Oh, is it the Kings? Mar- Mar- Marvin Bagley is with the Kings. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like uh, an- Another team. irrelevant team. <laughs> exactly, another bad team in the Western Conference. <laughs> well, I mean, all of this is all PR-driven, right? Totally. So I kind of question whether any of it is personal at all or if it was all just kind of manufactured by... Totally. I mean, the remember industry. like was it? I don't know. If it, was it ten years ago when like they found out when when Kanye West and Fifty Cent had a beef? I and didn't it, even know that there was like a thing that they did like a who who can sell more records, and it was pretty much figured out that like the two of them like conspired to make a fake beef. Right. You know. I mean, I think that Biggie and Tupac had a legit beef. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming. Though Tupac but, did admit that he 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 pushed it to get more 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 right. um so the more rest of these people are sort of playing off of that. Yeah. Speaking of fifty cent, is it fair to say there's probably a whole generation of people who know more for like vitamin water than for like in the club? Because that that song's old now. Or power. I would say people probably more know him more from that that show oh, Power. Oh, he's in that show? I mean, it is his show. Oh, like, really? He like executive producer, and he's like a character in it. I don't watch Power. Right, but when's the last time? Uh, wasn't the last time Fifty Cent dropped the actual song? I can't remember. Oh, it's been years. It feels like I was in high school when that happened. Rap is not profitable anymore for rappers. That's, that's like that's like the funniest thing. Like Jay Z's not making any more records. I mean, I remember I talked with, with Trevor on Champagne Sharks once, like how like Tyler the Creator, like they all are like trying to get out of rap. Is it because it's like music in general is not profitable? Totally, I think so. And mm-hmm. I think also they don't they're not artists in the sense where they they see themselves as having a life in art. They're seeing uh music as a catapult towards higher celebrity. Celebrity really but really really steeped in financial success. Right. So they seem more like business people. Exactly. Looking for their like startup idea. Or right. Whatever. And they and I think they think after a while, once they're able to sit with a couple of multimillionaires who they would never guess are multimillionaires, they go, oh, my God, rap is corny. Why am I doing this? They don't they don't even I don't even think they really love what they're doing. Right. Right. 
All right, let's get back to the article. So, M2, uh, why don't you tell us like what the article, just summarize what it said and why so many people got angry at it. Well, the article is, 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 is attempting to make this claim that Drake is the reason why singing is so prevalent in rap and hip-hop now. Okay, just to be clear, are we talking about the rapper doing the singing themselves? Yeah, the, oh, okay. the rapper, them doing them singing. So kind of like having a kind of hybrid vocalization. And he, he, he talks a lot about harmonizing and melody a lot and saying, making this kind of idea that this is the era of that and it's never really been present in this way. And we can thank Drake for that because of Drake's billboard album selling success right people got mad because it's funny like the people that i saw initially kind of jump out or all people that i know who are hip hoppers hip hop community people who have been around for like you know forever because on its face it's a terrible argument when you first of all i'm not even going to go back to like the 80s when like you know that was happening but let's even go to like someone like we all know who CeeLo is right CeeLo from uh he used to be he was on for people for people who watch like the voice he's one of the judges of the voice but CeeLo from the goody mob and all that stuff mm-hmm. formerly of Gnarls Barkley the song crazy which was a major <laughs> major hit yeah well but CeeLo from 2006 a, exactly yeah. CeeLo's a rapper and CeeLo was rapping on goody mob records in the 90s this, then he had like two solo albums so this is someone like I'm not even digging all the way back to like the, the to like the beginnings of it where you had like cold crush brothers it was a feature in and and it's interesting because harmonizing you could say this maybe that drake has been a part of a era where harmonizing and using melody has become popular again you can say that but to say that he is the person who's made it a standard is ridiculous because then also like being sing-songy, Method Man used to do that job. So you would see like Twitter lists, people would just like write down rappers, right? Like a, a friend of mine put a guy from the far side, a Slim Kid Trey, and you know, and it, you would just see people's massive lists of rappers. And then the rapper Fonte, which is also funny because like, I don't even think Drake would make this claim, be honest with you. I don't think Drake would be arrogant enough to make this claim, but the rapper Fonte, who Drake has admitted uh, to being very influenced by, and Fonte has been very influenced by Most Def, another rapper who also sings, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, Fonte was like, "How are you going to do this?" He wrote, he wrote, he did a he had a whole I think Twitter thread about it. Like you, you people are out here trying to erase my name. So I think people got mad because once again, you have a, a major publication that's never really had any connection to hip hop. Uh, outside of finding it interesting from some kind of like zoo animal kind of level, right. Right. making a should... statement. So about... who's the guy who wrote it again? The John. Let me get let me get his name right because like I don't. John. It starts with a C. Caramonica. Caramonica. Yeah. So yeah. what's what's his deal? I know he's a so I know he's a long time. He's been with the New York Times for a long time. A, a friend of mine. Uh, shout out to my man Manny Faces, who's a journalist in the, in the, in the hip hop world. Um, he actually made a post on Facebook recently talking about how John Caramonica, in his opinion, has been like problematic for years in his writing. So he's been doing a lot of like hip hop writing for a long time. And apparently he's one of these people who are really into talking about the now and not really looking at the past. And um, for so for some people, that I, I, had, I, I hadn't heard of this guy, at least not knowingly. Maybe I had read some of his, his articles and not knew it. But like some people had already had read stuff was like, oh, here comes this guy again. What an idiot. But he's been with the Times for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I looked up in his bio. He also went to Harvard, already a, a 
blackjack or yeah, black mark go. against them. Figures. But yeah, he just strikes me as probably one of these uh, like like nerdy uh, white hip hop like geeks. And then they just go in. Like, they have a totally different experience. And the re- I think the reason why people got so upset about this is it, there's this, it seems to have this attitude where because this guy, John, whatever his name is, or the New York Times didn't know or really care about all those names you mentioned from, you know, back in the 80s or even 90s, or early 2000s, mm-hmm. they simply don't matter. Drake matters to them because Drake is so popular. It's re- impossible to ignore Drake. Therefore, it's like nothing matters unless they know of it. So you right. can be the most successful like underground hip hop singer, whatever. But if unless you are relevant to the New York Times clique, you you simply don't exist. Exactly. And you know, this is I think this has been a problem in like hip hop for a long time, where there's this thing of oh, if it didn't sell records, it's not relevant, right? If it's not mainstream popular repeal it's not relevant so because of what you just said drake is now appealing to the new york times and means it's relevant and like anyone who knows basic like sociological just (laughs) taking uh you know survey of the world well that's not true relevance is not necessarily popularity right there's people who take from things that were seemingly unknown and make it into something big you're going to credit only the person who got big because of it or you're going to credit the person who actually invented it right plus you don't know mm-hmm. what's going to be relevant like 20 years from now no, you don't like, there are a lot of things that were popular 30 years ago we don't we simply don't care about exactly and we look back and we go yeah it's funny goodwill hunting was on earlier and i was watching on tv and i was like yeah this movie doesn't age well <laughs> i mean drake is easily approvable right that's why that's why i think you know the new york times is so into him um, but I don't like I said earlier. I just I don't think his music is good. No. Yeah, Drake's songs I know. I mean, the song "Best I Ever Had" was a big hit when I was like a senior in college. I think that's a nice song. Mm-hmm. I know, kind of know Hotline Bling, uh, just because it was everywhere, oh, and gosh, I just decided to watch it because yeah, that music video everyone was you know gifting it and and shit like that. What what are some other Drake songs? Um, You're asking the wrong person. Yeah, I remember like I I, I listened to a Drake I, I listened to a Drake album once and I I. I I said to myself, I see why people get into this. But to me, Drake is the example of when you want to kind of separate yourself from any kind of reality and live in some weird self-empowered fantasy land that, that you actually know doesn't exist. But it feels better to like live in this in, in this world. And I think also he's he's usable because, like you said, he's acceptable around. Like I think he has like a big crossover repeal. He's middle class upper middle class homes they like drake and there's some people in the, the block who like drake you know well men t- women you tell know. me if i'm wrong about this but i don't feel like he typically raps about killing people no, for example exactly he's nope. not angry in that way mm-hmm. and even if he's angry it's like he's smart he's He's sad about being angry it hurts <laughs> right. so much to have to, to exactly. do this it's about the angst of his <laughs> yes. anger Yes. Did, didn't he appear in the the Justin Bieber baby video? Wasn't he in that? Maybe. I, I swear he's like in the bowling alley for some reason. This like grown ass man with a bunch of teenagers. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's like that's like his his. I like, don't know. Lane. It's it's he's his music is very sanitized. To me. Yeah, it feels very sanitized, yeah. and it's completely uninteresting. I also, and oh, this is a thing for me. He's always he's always flat. When he sings, he's a little flat. Yeah, I don't well, know if this is like an auto tune thing. But it really irritates me. Well, I think uh, I think Pearl Jam, I think, like, was one of the first. I don't want to misspeak here, but like Eddie Vedder is always flat. I always also think that Drake is slightly flat, and I guess that's just the aesthetic. But I think it's terrible. Like, well, what exactly do you mean? Because like, 
in case you guys don't know, Millie uh, was a very highly trained musician. So well, for those of you who might not understand. So is what, Oxford, Oxford. Well, no, not definitely not up to your level. But so what do you, what exactly do you mean by flat? You know, they're singing in tune. And then there's uh, <laughs> singing sharp, which is a little bit uh, right, which means you're, I don't even know what the right, for all of my music training, I can't describe this properly. It's uh, like the the tone is a little higher or lower. And so if you're flat, you're not in key. You're, you're, you're singing a little bit lower at a tone that's lower than what you should be singing at. So what is that, do you th- is that a decent description? Yeah. So what do you think is the effect that they're trying to convey by doing that i have no idea i think most people can't tell i think it's easy to 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 sing along to without without being intimidated because most people are sing f- yeah flat. exactly because yeah. people sing oh flat. really you yeah, be right I about that. so because like <laughs> you can sing along to it in the car you can sing along to it with your friends so it's not like singing re-singing mini ripperton which none of us can do in this room mm-hmm. you know like when that ah Comes, can't. We can't do it. Exactly. <laughs> Very few people, even good singers can't redo it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're in your car. You want to sing Hotline Bling together with your friends. All of you can do it confidently because Drake is not even really singing. Yeah, well. I know what you mean. Like his, his range is so limited. It's so limited. But that's fine because yeah. so are most of ours. It'll work on a cell phone. You know, it's <laughs> I, I do think there's a there's an, there's an element to, 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 to pop stars with certain pop stars because they're not so much above us that people feel more comfortable with them, mm-hmm. right? More accessible. Exactly. Do you guys ever be in a karaoke room and, and a guy tries to sing like a Taylor Swift song, not realizing how high her voice is? It sings and in it's the wrong terrible. key. <laughs> and it's like 30 seconds in, you re- they realize they're in trouble. Yeah. And then they try to go like an octave down, but then it's too low or it's like, yeah. it doesn't work. And it's just like, uh, and then it's like, oh God, we got like four more minutes of this. Like, yeah. please just give up. Yeah, uh, like, you know, oh, ti- you know, we, we got precious time. Time's a wasting, but... <laughs> It's funny. I, I was looking back at the article and like the, the, the absurdity of it where at the end, he says, you know, and because Drake's ascendance came at the onset of the peak of the streaming era, his influence has been felt globally, too. There are now rappers. Oh, this- there, there, there are now rappers who are also singers in Spanish, rappers who are also singers in French, rappers who are also singers in Korean, which means the sound of pop around the world for the next day or more will stand on his shoulders and this is just absurd there's always been rappers who sing like queen latifah sings she released the album of like mm-hmm. of like you know, like like show tunes you That's, know that like, sounds like something you'd see in like an undergraduate thesis the advent of social media has has led to the expansion of genres all around the world all around the world totally. without without no other evidence right, right. just because they say so Right, but because this person writes for the New York Times, he automatically gets a platform that right. other writers don't have, yeah. and so it's sort of a self-perpetuating problem. Yeah, because then, like, yeah, because then you'll have some professor who do who does like cultural analysis who knows nothing about hip hop, and then some nineteen-year-old says, "I found this guy who really knows hip hop," and cites him in her in her paper, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, it becomes part of intellectual thought in the in the, in, in the university. And it's just, it's absurd. Right. Yeah. But this is what happens when the establishment, in particular, the white establishment, gets to make calls about what is mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. What's what? At what point in your life? Because I, I think we all grew up thinking like the New York Times is untouchable and, and great. Oh, totally. But at what age do you think you guys were like, uh, you know what? I think they're kind of full of shit. I mean, I for me, tell. it was very recently. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Why don't we start? Was there, like a, was there a moment? Because I got a moment. Um, Same. I, I want to hear about yours. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it has to do with getting to know you guys on plan a <laughs> you sort of opened up my eyes to you know 
various hypocrisies, including that of the New York Times. Um, but I do remember that article from 10 years ago about Drake in the New York Times, you know, which made no sense to me at the time. I, I had a personal experience, actually. So, you know, I don't know if people know. I was a professional actor for many years and um, play I did written by a guy named Adam Rapp. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I know. Him. Yeah, Adam mm-hmm. Rapp. Wait, the guy from Rent? Well, he's the brother of Anthony Rapp. Oh, that guy's Anthony Rapp. Yeah, okay, Anthony awesome. Rapp's brother. So Adam, Adam's a, he's a great writer. Shout out to Adam. Um, plays, uh, YA novels, type, all types of stuff. And um, I did a play. And, you know, this is when I learned about the, the New York. Well, it's kind of changed. But in, in, the, in the, the, the early 2000s, New York Times had pretty much sole power over the New York theater scene. If you got a bad Times review, your play would not work. Right. If you got a good Times review, people would come see it. And I remember everything was about this Times review. And our Times review was like lukewarm in the middle, meaning like we could have we did a little bit better, but we didn't do great. And I learned how people kind of campaigned with these with these these writers to get good reviews. And I said, if anyone has that kind of power and people can campaign, I remember reading a review of a play that I had went and saw right after our play closed and it was terrible, but I know it was a kind of a flavor of the month. And I was like, you know what? New York Times is just like any other paper in that way that they can manipulate um, people. And it's just, you know, so after that, I began to look at them very, very with a kind of like a, a real micro microscope. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't yeah. like these people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of, of course, this is against, I, I, I mean, I would say in, you know, very recently I've become just much, my my um, discomfort with the hypocrisy of the New York Times has become much more pointed. But I mean, I would say this is against the background of having grown up in a world where I kind of felt like the news was never about me, right. never, ever about me um, or people who looked like me or my family, you know, we were basically irrelevant and invisible and invisible in that world. Um, so the New York times felt like the most legit source for information within that realm, but you know, it, 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 it wasn't exactly, it wasn't like the rug was, you know, torn out from under me, you know, when I realized that the New York times was full of shit. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think my moment, um, is relevant to that because I remember this must have been a couple of years ago. I just moved to New York uh, for my job. I was taking a subway to work uh, to Midtown, and I saw somebody on the subway whom I recognized from college. I think she was like a year or two below me, and I didn't I didn't know her, but I knew of her. I, I just knew her. She was like this rich party girl from Britain or something. She like hung out with like all the popular frat guys and stuff. I, I had some friends there, so like we were kind of maybe in a when I went to a party or two, she might be there. So I knew of her. And then she left a couple of stations before me. So I, I just got curious just to see what she was up to. And I looked her up. And she works at the New York Times. I don't think as a reporter. I think it was it was not not in a writing capacity. And then she wrote something right after Brexit happened. I guess because she, uh, she was British. So she wrote it. And it was just the most childish thing you can imagine. Just saying, I learned that uh, globalization doesn't benefit everyone after brexit and my friends and i who are all part of the erasmus generation must do better like, oh my fucking god <laughs> and i was like oh no wonder like if that was the remain side no wonder like you guys lost it's just yeah <laughs> so that was like my moment where i was like oh my god like this is amelia uh, as you said the reason it's not about people like us is that it's like people like her who get jobs at the new york times yeah right. it's their concerns it's that's their why, point of view it's their point yeah. of view. that's why they don't know about all those like 
you know, hip hop artists who who may not be you know Billboard or mm-hmm. or or be popular with the rich hipster types because they're you know they're a little too back in the day or something. So yeah, it's all that bullshit. Yeah. And um, okay, I think there's a good way to move on to the next article that came out. I think it was last week. It was <laughs> the one on Parasite. And the article was by this woman named Thessaly LaForce and asked about why all these movies coming out of Asia are so obsessed with violence and rage. And she said it's because of Confucianism. All right, let's talk about this. Who wants to go first? Um, as, as someone who's obviously not Asian, I read it. <laughs> and, I, and the first thing I was like, because I don't know much about Confucianism, I, I, I'll be first. Honestly, me neither. Well, me neither. And this is my point. Right, exactly. And this, and this is my point. So I'm reading it, and I'm and I'm so you know people also know I may not know I, I'm I, I teach film I, I work in film and I'm reading it and I'm going I'm I'm asking I was like if I was to like it's like a dissertation or something and I had to like you know go back to her and with with some questions to challenge her argument I'd I'd, I'd ask her I was like well um you're making some big umbrellas you know I thought uh. I've noticed I've been to Asia. There's a lot of different cultures there. Do they all use Confucianism? Like, do they all use these same ideas? I, I'm 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 reading it and I'm going. This feels very blanket, you know. Then there mm-hmm. was things specifically I did know that really. And I'll get to that later. But like, that's why I wanted to ask y'all. I'm like, was I often just reading it, going, "You are really being super blanket here," and I and I don't know nothing about it. It's always incredibly frustrating when someone who is outside of your culture tries to tell you what your culture is in a very flattening and like almost absurdly broad way. You know, I was trying to think of like a good analogy. It's kind of like, you know, if someone, if some European person, you know, you know, tried to dismiss American culture by saying, oh, you Americans, you know, you're so obsessed with liberty and independence. I mean, just look at the writings of Ben Franklin. Right. (laughs) Like, well, are we? I don't know. Yeah. What? You know, a couple of things to say. First of all, uh, at the end of the article, there was like an editor's correction. They thought um, the vegetarian by Han Gang was Vietnamese, not Korean. So, I mean, that just shows you <laughs> the level of research they did. Oh, man. And Millie, actually, what you said about her being outside the culture is, is a fascinating discussion because she's apparently half Chinese. Right, I know. She really doesn't look it. And in fact, she wrote this article for uh, this publication called The Star, which talked about Asian American representation. And she said, like, she admitted that most people don't treat her as Asian because she doesn't really look Asian. And she says she doesn't look Asian at all. And her name is Thessaly LaForce. Yeah, and then yeah. she like uh, says like I'm I have like creased eyes. I'm like over six feet tall. I, I don't really mm-hmm. fit like an Asian woman image. Yeah. So you have uh, I've said this before in a pod, and I'll say this again because it's worth repeating. Why is it that when it comes to race writing, they always get the people who are least connected to their to that actual identity? It's always like someone like like the Thessaly LaForce person who herself admits has never really been treated Asian or if they do get someone who's Asian is always someone who had some weird issues with their identity until very recently did not really identify with themselves like if you really want somebody to write about like uh, how Parasite's all about Confucianism why not get someone who's like so steeped in that culture like a real has studied East Asian culture right and and, expert and the kind of person who quite frankly doesn't even really have a lot of white friends or peers because like they're just so into that. Why not get that person? Because at least that person will know what they're talking about. Because that person won't represent the point of view of the New York Times. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I also, I also not saying that the New York Times would take a more balanced article, but I'm pretty sure she pitched this too, and they liked it. 
Right, she's written other articles you know. about Asian American right. being my, Asian American. In my the guess is that in that room, she is probably the most Asian person there. So yeah. if she pitched it, she probably do it, did it knowing that this is kind of her lane. Totally, simply because nobody else is there. And um, I mean, she might not. She might know a lot about it. She might not know a lot about it. I, as I said, I'm not a Confucian expert, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to cast judgment. But I think it's once again, Millie, as you said, it, it does like. I think the central question is, who is this for? Who is reading this? Is it other Asians? Hell no. It's the, it's like the New York Times crowd who, who reads like the, the, you know, the, the vows section, you know, yeah. every Sunday. And that's, that's not a very Asian crowd. And I think that's what we get so pissed off about is that is it somebody from the outside writing about us to more people on the outside who are then going to project all this shit on us that we didn't even say ourselves. Yeah. And I read a very good comment um, on New York Times where somebody, because the this article is, the central premise of this article is that the overwhelming majority of movies coming out of Asia are like this, like violent Confucian soaked thing. But if you go to Korea, like 90% of the movies you see there never get released in the U S and the vast majority of them are like dumb rom-coms, dumb action movies, just like here. It's only the, the better question is why are Americans so obsessed with these movies are are you guys like secretly Confucianist? Maybe that's the best. I I would say, I mean, I think, I think that's a better argument. That's a better argument, even though I still think you're being a little flattening when like Wong Kar Wai is pro- was probably for 15 years the most popular Asian director in America. And he makes love stories and, you know, and, people, you know, he's making re- revenge films. Right, right. You know, so it's like it's right. kind of flat, you know, in, in, as an analysis. But I do agree. You have a better chance in having this conversation of why are Americans so obsessed with this subset of movies from asia but then I still think yeah it's i mean too. i just i found her article confusing in a few ways i mean for one thing all horror movies are about rage and the repressed right so i i just don't see why you know asian horror films would be more you know wh- why you could say that especially about asian horror films you know if you compare it to horror films from anywhere else in the world including america one theory i have is this is like uh, if you look at something like Parasite, you look at something like Burning, which came out last year, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is is about class, right? My one feeling I have is maybe Americans are just insecure about the fact that why aren't they making these types of movies? If we are indeed living in this age of extreme inequality and a lot of angry people, why is it that Americans are still watching fucking Frozen Two and Marvel, and and they see this stuff coming out of Asia, and they, and that's why they like it, because it, it, this stuff's not getting made in America. But they cannot admit that um, maybe we Americans are the passive, obedient ones who can't make these legitimately angry movies. I mean, chances are fucking like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg are going to become the Democratic nominee in spite of all this hoopla about, oh, Trump is so uh, horrible. Trump is so horrible. What did we do? They had that like pussy hat parade and that was it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and if we talk about oh, being so angry, but uh, as I said, chances are Joe Biden's going to win the nomination or some shit. Uh, so I, then you see these movies coming out and it's like, ooh, we need that. But we can't say that. We got to explain somehow that they're weird. There's like some weird Confucian thing. Um, that's just one, I, one theory. Well, I, I actually agree with you because I actually said on, on Twitter, someone had asked me had I read the article before I had actually read it. And I said to him, I, I said, I, said I, re- I went and read it. I replied back and I said, there's an element I do think of this is actually jealousy of the exceptional, nat- of, the exceptional nature of c- 
really Korean cinema as of the last what twenty years has been really kicking ass, right? Japanese cinema has been great for a long time, and there's a, a long envy from Americans over Japanese cinema and and Chinese cinema and Hong Kong stuff and all that stuff being very very popular and um and always regarded as yeah they do the revenge stuff, but there's like a depth to it, you know. Sometimes, and I think what you said is correct, like. I think some of these people are looking on and saying, okay, well, you know, we, we do that too, but like knowing that they really don't. And, and, and because I actually, I have said that I've actually have said that I, I remember being in a, in a room with some, with some filmmakers all from America. And I said, I said, I said, I said, Koreans make better movies than Americans on average. They were like, are you out of your mind? I was like, they do. Like, I don't care what I said for the last 20 years, they've made better films than, than the U S I think it's, if you just look at it and they just get really upset they get really like they would accept me saying france yeah. you know what i'm saying but they would not accept me saying mm-hmm. a country from asia makes better films in the u.s mm-hmm. maybe maybe japan i don't know yeah i mean to me a lot of this just has to do with to me point it points to the america a complete lack of desire on the on the on behalf of americans to understand asian culture yeah. certainly the nuances of asian culture um, you know, it's just easier, you know, to 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 go with the Confucian explanation, to go with explanations that don't make any sense than it is. You know, there there's no there's no there's no desire there. Yeah, and it's weird because like I'm like I'm 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 by no means well studied in Asian culture at all. But I so in the article she brings up a touch of sin, which is a movie that I absolutely loved. I when it came out, I loved that movie. And she talks about the first scene about the guy. Uh, the first sequence is four stories, and this first sequence is about a guy who discovers corruption um, in his uh, business that he works in, and he wants to pretty much, you know, really actually the only thing he first wants them to do is actually have a conversation with him, and they won't, and they beat him up, and they do all these things to him. So he goes back and he he gets revenge, and I was like, oh, this is a really sad film about class oppression. And she makes it about, oh, it's a, it's morally messed up about just a man who kills and gets revenge. I was like, are you serious? So I'm, I, on, on one, I have to say, think of one, two things. Either she's flattening it on purpose or like there's really no class analysis here in the U.S. Not a strong enough class analysis here in the U.S. to even recognize when someone from another country is doing it. Because I recognized it straight out. I was like, oh, this, is, this film is all about class oppression. Yeah, I was going through some of her other writings. One of her most recent articles was called like How to Have a Romantic Greek Outdoor Dinner. And it is oh, like no. some some oh, event no. uh, by some young celebrity chef, I think at MoMA PS1. And I was just looking at the pictures. Obviously everyone there is white. And I was like, what 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 is it? Like, why is this person writing about Confucianism? And I've read her article. I think on its face, nothing really stood out no. badly against me. In fact, there was one line where she said something like, um, like these like oriental the like traditional orientalist ideas would show uh, Asians as obedient but these movies show them as anything but so she she acknowledges well, that right but, but what does she think her article is doing right, right. And, and i think it's also <laughs> like why are you writing this um yeah like, i mean okay and to to clarify i don't want to you know be down on her experience as an asian american yeah she's half asian american and that's you know that comes with its own baggage obviously it's just that, you know, I do understand the resentment, you know, from 
full Asian. Her experience as someone who has a white name and doesn't look Asian at all is very different from someone who is full Asian and gets called Chang on, you know, a Chang on the subway. Yeah, right. Uh, so Joshua Luna, the Filipino American comic book artist, uh, he tweeted a bunch of things about the fact that she was because a lot of people assume she was white because she looks white. And some smart Alex said, oh, but actually she's like half Asian. And then uh, so I thought this tweet uh, among a series of tweets was very uh, was very insightful. It says, but that prioritization doesn't stop with celebrities. It extends into every other institution and industry affecting everyday Asians. He's talking about how a lot of like mixed race white Asians um, just seem to have more access to you know positions of visibility, power, etc. And this is him continuing. If we can acknowledge that East Asians have privileges over Southeast Asians, why is it so taboo to acknowledge the privileges mixed white Asians have? And and that's a good point. People have tried to cancel him mm-hmm. before. I, I'm assuming this is not going to go over too well with that same crowd. But it's it's totally... Um, it is... Uh, I mean, I, I, I have my own answers why. But I mean, I'm telling you, like, for example, in the, in the black community, remember when, like, Jesse Williams... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's kind of a fraudster, right? But still, like, mm-hmm. he, at least, uh, he, what was it, like, the Soul Train Awards or something? He goes up and he's yeah. talking about how... Because he's light skinned with like green eyes, he he has to recognize his privilege yeah. and and make way for the, like th- there's an acknowledgement in the black community that that's real, but among Asians there's this like r- weird refusal to acknowledge that. I mean, I I have my own theories why. There's but. a sometimes acknowledgement in the black community, like because I would even think um, it depends on the person and depends on the moment. I think Jesse Williams is just so liked, but I even get into the there's a. I do think he's liked also because of his proximity to whiteness. He what? He's liked because of his pro- proximity oh, to yeah, whiteness yeah. Visu- uh, visually. And I think it actually gives some people permission to be like, oh, I love Jesse Williams so much. Right, right. You know, and I was like, why do you like him yeah, so but, much? But he acknowledges that, right? Yeah. yeah. To a, I think to a degree. Mm-hmm. He like half acknowledges it. I don't I don't I don't think he I think he says it verbally, but I don't think in action he really he really acknowledges it. But um no, I agree with you, and I, I, I think that that tweet is very, is very, is very fair, and it says even coming from a black perspective, when you have to look at it, it's like, I think you see my with like class with black people, right? Where we're able to see, you know, advantages that maybe men or women have, or these people have, but then, oh no, um, but not that people of certain classes have, right? So I think that would be the equivalent in the black community. Millie, what are your thoughts? Oh well, I was going to ask you because you mentioned that you had your own theories. And I was curious as to what yeah. those were. Oh, okay. So I think it's mainly the reason it's taboo is two things. I think it's because one, the like Asian American elite, for them, integrating to whiteness is a core tenet of their just a like, class ideology. Mm-hmm. And they like to think of themselves as liberal and progressive. Therefore, if you call out just like proximity to whiteness as something that is actually antithetical to that, it destroys their self image. So they have to um they have to guard against that. Uh, and I think the second reason is that I think for a lot of young, like second generation Asian Americans, and I can test attest to this personally, for all the gripes you might have against like white racism and all that, you still, because you have your own issues like growing up with like Asian American, and not Asian American, but like a- immigrant Asian parents, you still see like Asianness as this oppressive force. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you learn to associate um, going outside of Asianness, which is basically white whiteness as a liberating force so your ideology is your social ideology is based on contact with white people as something that is a liberalizing force therefore if you say something like 
and what's the logical conclusion to that? It's like having mixed race children, right? If you are going to have a family. But if you call that and say that is actually feeding into this power structure, then the logical explanation, uh, the only way out of that is like, well, you got to, you know, stick with other Asians. And for us, uh, I think from childhood, we've always associated that with something that's kind of like nasty, backwards, just like, just the opposite of what it means to be a good American. So I think it's a bunch, it's like a combination of those two things, which makes it like, it's so obvious. Like, yeah, if you're living in a white supremacist society, the, the closer you are to looking white, uh, you're going to have it somewhat easier. Not, right. Nobody's saying you're going to have it as good as like, like a fucking Kennedy, but you're probably going to have it better than somebody who looks like a total chink or whatever. So the fact that we can't even acknowledge that basic truth is just just shows you why um so many asian americans are like fed up and stuff and that's the thing i think people don't really want to examine the idea of the pro- of proximity to whiteness it's a really whether it's a visual proximity whether it's you make a lot of money um whether it's your educational you know rising of how you can get into certain classes in certain places because when the it's what you said the minute the minute you begin to analyze that really everything you believe in falls flat on its face. I have to admit, and I'm not just saying this, when I read the article, I did wonder. I said, this actually sounds like someone who might be part Asian, who has a deep dislike for her own culture. Mm -hmm. I said that to myself because I've read articles from like half black people who write things about, say like, you know, black hip hop, like hip hop, not black hip hop, hip hop is black, about hip hop or anything, right? And it'll come from this lens where it's like, there's, you've internalized this white view of your own. And it has like a certain like extra like mustard of like just nastiness to it. So when I read the article, I wondered, I was like, so when I heard that she was, I was like, I'm not surprised actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if she actually dislikes uh, Asian culture or not, but it's, as I said, from her own writing, she never had like that asian american experience because of what she looked yeah. like and that is such a key part of being a minority well she's a, ju- a judgment i would say she's a judgmental uh, maybe, okay. maybe 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 that's a better word it, it's it's extremely judgmental like if i was reviewing this back i say this is extremely judgmental um i i find you have a very singular view without even me realize knowing what <laughs> to throw back at you i can just tell so it's very judgmental yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, you, you kind of do have to consider the source, you know, when when you read things like this, you know, I mean, not to make it all personal, but like, everyone has their own psychology, you know, and right. so I kind of go there as well. I'm kind of like, well, what's this person's attitude on her Asian-ness in general? Um, but I, I wanted to go back to something you said about, um, what was it? I mean, I, I think when you're I definitely understand what you're saying about how, you know, when you're growing up Asian American and you're, you know, you're frustrated with your family, you know, there is this temptation to, you know, want to be more white so that you can escape your Asianness, you know, but wouldn't you find like, wouldn't, I don't know, I don't know if you, I will ask if you agree that, you know, whiteness is asymptotic, you know what I mean? You can approach whiteness. This whole, like, right. I have major issues with this whole proximity to whiteness thing. Because I, I think a lot of Asians certainly will say, you know, you um, you live in white spaces. You know, you work with white people. You're married to white people. You know, and present that as though it's some sort of um, 
as if that's a good thing or a solution to a problem and right. it just isn't no. you know in my experience and i've spent plenty of time in white spaces you know the closer you are to white people the less white you feel the more you realize that it's impossible that you know you are you'll never be white you know and nor should you want to be white white people have all kinds of problems of their own you know and it's just i don't know it's um I definitely agree. I think that though that is something that a lot of Asian Americans don't get to experience firsthand. And right, so there's this sort of you know mystique about it, and I think a resentment of it. But yeah. you know, as someone who's been there to some extent, like I'm here to say that you know, it's not what it's cracked up to be. And, right, and but I, I, you know, kind of like how a parent who, um, I don't know, spent their youth uh, in like in like a rock band and, and did like all sorts of drugs, telling their kids. You don't want to do that. You'll end up like a total burnout loser. I pulled out at the last minute. Now I'm like a nice accountant, you know, got a nice house. Like, trust me, you don't want to do LSD <laughs> right. and, and Molly. Problem is, I think there are certain things you got to experience for yourself to really know that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I called you Molly. <laughs> Millie, <laughs> I totally agree with you. I think the more time you spend with, with white people, you realize they're not all that's cracked up to be. But I, I do think that is something uh, you got to sort of see for yourself. I think a lot of Asian Americans do feel excluded from that. Mm. Yes, and, which is painful. And and, and they and they always aspire up. for it because like it could be something as simple as just watching a TV show growing up, thinking that um you know white families are so much nicer, or you know like you just go out and you see like all the all the like the cool white kids having a great time. You think oh if if I were in that circle, my life would be so great. I think the solution is yeah go in that spend spend a little time there and you'll probably want out you know and that would be great but the thing is most people don't get that chance so then it just builds up more and more in your mind and then there's that resentment of the few asian americans who do get into that right and And, then those asian americans i get that i appreciate that i just you know it's like i just want people to keep keep things in perspective Um, right yeah it's interesting because there are some people though who like I think don't go over to that next stage of realizing that you'll never be white. There are some people who still, well, maybe if I yeah, but do how delusional this, do you have to be? It's pretty, pretty I think pretty. Right, I think of course. There, there no, are, no, there are plenty of delusional insane. people it's, out there. It's, 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 it's incredible. I mean, and I think that's why you have people who then get on hard drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. commit suicide and all types of stuff. Like, I mean, look at someone like Kanye West. I always say Kanye West is a big problem every, I think Kanye West's big problem every morning is realizing that he can never be white, right? But then he wakes up, the, but then he, 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 he thinks for 20 minutes, he goes, wait a minute, no, no. Actually, maybe if I do this, I can be white. Right. And he keeps trying and trying and trying. And that's why he comes off so insane because he's in this never ending loop of trying to find the highest proximity to whiteness that he can. You know, I mean, he's even said even things he says that people, the people he compares himself to right now, he's using God, <laughs> which I think is like perfect. He's like, if you think in, in the, the, the levels of his logic, it's so perfect. He's like, all right, I can't use anything that's material, so I have to go to something ethereal. Yeah, who, who's, who's whiter than God? Who's himself? whiter than God? <laughs> Jesus. God's beyond. God is beyond white, color. White beard, white robes, everything, everything's white. And he calls himself the, the greatest artist uh, God ever created. I mean, that's, that's just trying to position yourself as all-powerful. And it's insane. It's legitimately insane. All right. Uh, well, if if we have anything else to add to that, um, 
Why don't we? Why don't we talk about like stupid shit that happened on Twitter in the last uh, week or so? Remember uh, the whole uh, Indian food is bad. <sighs> Yo, I saw that. That was <laughs> what was that? All right, so it started off with some guy. Um, uh, he said, he, I think he just said, uh, "Please share your like unpopular food opinions." And then this guy named Tom Nichols, who is like some like never Trumper. I mean, uh, uh, already you know already like a strike against them yeah but he says something like uh you know it's like indian food is bad um etc and then that that itself is like okay if you don't like indian food i don't know what the hell your problem is do yeah, you, yeah. Do you, fuck that do, do, yeah. you, do you do you have tongue cancer and you, i am you have to personally chop it off? Yeah. offended by that yeah I, but, I, I, yeah keep going but i think a stupider thing was people actually took that opinion as something that was worth trying to refute and convince him and the worst sight was like all these like South Asian people saying, um, "Well, have you tried this dish from the region?" <laughs> no. oh, I saw that, no, and no. then and or some somebody would say, "Well, clearly this guy's only been going to like the the cheap like you know, like, ooh, that's that's like, that's place that's around bad. the corner. He hasn't gone to this authentic place. Like, why are you trying to convince this dumbass? Let him enjoy his I don't know. And he's macaroni salad trolling the, you. Yeah, and then. This guy got probably a big kick out of this. Well, he he wrote an article. I found this, and he's he has it now pinned on his Twitter. Oh, nice. Um, I'm gonna let me get the title of the article. Um, it is called "I Tweeted." I tweeted that I couldn't stand Indian cuisine and started an international food fight. And he got this published Shut on up. USA Today. See, like, that's what exactly you gave him exactly what he wanted. What people should have just ignored him because that opinion is not worth an ounce of respect move on yeah and we have a world in which someone like me can become a story and send thousands of people into heated oh, you, you arguments know he, he over like jerked nothing. off to this uh, we attention. are now planet seinfeld <laughs> that's what he writes i mean he totally got y'all he's planet seinfeld exactly he totally got y'all like this was like Oh my goodness! I I saw someone post post a tweet. Um, let's tell them about the the really good Indian dishes that are out there. Post them on your timeline, and I was like, seriously, people like, come on, man, like just go have your your food and be happy and know that this guy is. It, that means more for you if he's exactly. not Indian. It's more for us. Yeah, you know? exactly. He ain't got the palate for good food. Well, f him. I have a particular fondness for Indian food because uh, when I was in college, I worked for a little while for Danny Meyer. Oh, really? Uh, you know, the New York restaurateur, who, you know. Yeah, Shake Shack, huh? Grand Shack. Oh, wow. right. uh, Union Square Cafe. Uh, very interesting the guy. Modern, yeah. Super, super smart. But I worked at his uh, Indian fusion restaurant, Tabla, and, you know, uh, got to eat Indian food every day. Uh, the chef there was this guy, Floyd Cardoz, like super yeah. interesting, like, you know, fascinating um, chef from Goa in India who introduced us to, you know, the... Um, specialties of Goan cuisine as opposed to, you know, other types of Indian cuisine. Um, and I'll never forget that, you know. Yeah. I mean, ever since, like, I've, I've been, I've basically been obsessed with Indian food. In, in Goan cuisine, do they use beef because it's mostly Catholic there? Are they allowed to? Um, I know there's certain regions of India where they actually remember. eat beef. But okay, never mind. Um, yeah. But yeah, in any it, case, Indian food's awesome, you know. Yeah, that's like, that's like probably one of the least controversial opinions you can have. Yeah, oh, Indian I, food is good. And the fact that this guy got so much attention, I don't know, what, what do you think, what, what's up with people on Twitter? Do, were they just itching for a fight? And at least this was a, this was a pretty low stakes fight, I think, that, uh, you know, who's really going to get, it was, it was like piling on, I, like, like, like the easy, easily picked on kid, because like, the kid who doesn't like Indian food in the Twitterverse is easy to just gang up on. I think it's also, 
it's an easier way. And I'm I'm not faulting anyone who uh, maybe had like a yo that's whack response to what he said, but like you know, I think people who went on like a big like let's take this tweet and make it into some kind of social campaign. I think this is an easier an easy thing to kind of uh, make a campaign of representation matters about some guy talked bad about indian food on twitter we showed him what indian food really is right and then <laughs> then, then it's all about them right because exactly like, indian food doesn't need our help no it's, trust. Like, it's 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 on a rampage it, it doesn't it's gonna conquer the world without you or me yeah now it's just about making a name for themselves and getting those retweets right and 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 that guy's happy to do it because his name is now in like Tons of articles around the internet. How we said his name. God damn it. Maybe we should edit that up. Yeah. Bleep it. <laughs> yeah. His name was in tons of articles around the internet. And he's like, he's loving it. I I, I, I swear. I saw he, he looked at that original tweet and said, oh, man, let's do it. Let's say something real nasty and just get in a war on Twitter. And I'm going to have a great opinion piece on USA Today. Right. And I, I bet he's like yucking it up with like Steven Crowder or those types saying, oh, totally. look at these snowflakes. I just said one bad thing about Indian food and they're all on me. And now he's got his, his buddies and yeah. stuff. So uh, stupid. Yeah. yeah. yeah let's, not, let's not talk about him anymore. <laughs> um, maybe we can just talk about uh, what cuisines do you guys like? I mean, mainly you said you were like Indian. Yeah. Well, you know me. I like to cook. And I, I mean, consider my an excellent, favorite excellent cook. kind of cooking to be ethnic comfort food. Yeah. So that includes many different cuisines, um, certainly including Indian. I love Middle Eastern cooking. Oh, wow. Of course, Korean cooking. I'm Korean, so, you know, uh, love making my own kimchi. And you Yeah, know, I was so surprised about that because I remember when I was really young, I remember my mom making kimchi. But then after a while, she was just like, oh, to hell with this. I'm just buying it. So I, I really didn't know outside of like countryside grandmas that people still made it. I guess oh, now well, there's probably a whole new like hip generation. Yeah, now everyone makes kimchi now. Yeah. Um, you know, because of its probiotic qualities, it's terribly hip. Uh, but I mean, I I'm ten years older than you, and my parents. So my parents are ten years older than your parents, at least. Um, and my mom, you know, I mean, I lived with them for a few months recently, and like she makes kimchi every week, and it's like. It's like a massive production. <laughs> they yeah, eat a lot really. of kimchi. So I grew up watching her do it and then actually just sort of decided um, that I was going to do it for myself. You know, her style of kimchi is very different from mine. Oh, yeah. How so? Mine is probably a little more Americanized. What, what does that mean? Uh, well, my someone told me it was my sister's nanny who's Korean and actually introduced me to uh, different kinds of Korean cuisine because she told me, like, you know, your mom's Korean cooking is very Seoul style. Oh, okay. Whereas my cooking is Cholado style, which oh, is yeah. kind of like... like the food capital of the Korea. Right, which I didn't know anything about. Um, so it was really good for me to learn about that. But in any case, uh, she told me, well, you put sugar in your kimchi and that's, like, huh. against the law. Oh, <laughs> against really? Against my law. I wouldn't do that. That's a very American thing to do. I see. Millie, is there some process to speed up fermentation? I swear, there's like this bucket of kimchi that I bought from HMR in my fridge. It will not ripen. I swear, it's been like over a week. It still tastes like 
blah and i really like it when it's kind of like overripe and <laughs> put it outside sour. yeah i mean if wait you like keep outside it of i swear it's like they like cryogenically frozen it's like it's not like really? yeah i don't know what yeah no no, no it's a temperature thing so firstly it's uh, winter which means it's oh, colder in general smart, very but smart. Okay. even still like you shouldn't put it if you need it to ferment faster it can't be in the fridge oh and why well, i was gonna say oh it's gonna spoil but the whole point of kimchi is it's gonna spoil so oh okay very very good okay yeah. <laughs> all right well that, i learned something today yeah <laughs> I mean, I, I learned a lot of things on every episode, but <laughs> but specifically to for your for your stomach, you learned yeah, something. Yeah. Um, lately, I've been I bought a, I'm getting into Senegalese cooking. What? Uh, oh yeah, because yeah, there's pork, this yeah. guy who I forget his name. It's Pierre or something. He's um a chef. Oh God, I, I wish I can we look him up? Maybe um, he owns Taranga Cafe, which is a Senegalese cafe up in harlem yeah i know that place yeah okay and um he's one of the chefs who's sort of responsible for bringing you know west african cuisine mm-hmm. to uh new york city um yeah, chef pierre tham or tam t-h-a-m that's yeah. right almost sounds vietnamese um i got his co- i'm obsessed with taranga i've got his cookbook so i'm like starting to cook from that um that is good stuff yeah what about you, I'm Tumi? I mean, I'm a, I'm a cooker myself. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I grew up, you know, I grew up here in New York, so I I grew up loving Italian food, and like, but not like just your like pizza shop Italian food, like deep, really strong Italian restaurants. And I think the first place I ever went to in Europe was Italy. I don't even think I, I was, and I you know learned about hand rolled pasta and really good stuff. So I, I mm. have a deep Italian food connection. Uh, love soul food. I make I make greens constantly. Greens? A uh, greens, a like collard oh, greens. Okay. I'm a very love I'm, I'm a very good collard greens maker. Obsessed Trust. with them. I will I will I will pat myself on the back on that. Um, you know I make various soul food dishes, mac and cheese, and things like that. Um, I have like dishes from like various cultures that I like. Like I have a couple like Szechuan dishes that I make. I haven't been expanding as much into recently, and I I want to like I uh I, I need I need to get back. I started making some Indian some Indian dishes actually recently, like a lot of like lentil dishes, like like um dal a lot of dal dishes I had make in the past year. But I, I need to get back to like experimenting with some others. I love food. I'm a I'm a Trust me, any culture has at least one thing I can eat <laughs> right. in there, right? You know, maybe British is the is the is the is the, is the, is the, is the toughest. But I other like than that, I like Yorkshire pudding. I like mean, Yorkshire just, pudding—it's it, just bread and gravy. What's not to like, right? I like mm-hmm. their eggs on toast. When I was in, I, I was in England for a little bit. Wait a minute, you can't. That can't be a right. No, but they have a way that they oh, do it. What's their it. way? What's their the way? They, it's the way they because their eggs are very soft, and they, they they put it with the toast on top. I like that as like a as like a nice like breakfast. I remember it was like you no, know, we do eggs on toast, like you know, boom, boom, pow. The English breakfast I can't do. That's just that's that's too. What is that again? It's like the sweet. It's like the what is it? The the blood sausage and all that stuff it's just very it's like a big plate of like eggs bacon i think their home fry style which i don't really like i make really good home fries as well and like the sausage the blood sausage it's 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 just it's never good you know it's yeah. just kind of <laughs> n- not working for me yeah it's too mm-hmm. heavy can't eat that heavy for breakfast no on sundays i can sometimes do it but even then i i, I don't make it as heavy as english breakfast they're pretty they're pretty crazy with it do you have a like an italian restaurant recommendation in new york city I mean, I have to say, even though he no longer works, he no longer is there. Lupa is great. 
uh, Mario Batali's restaurant was great. Lupe? Mm-hmm. Lupa. Lupa, okay. It's a great restaurant. There's another uh, one. How about um, Aldi Law in Brooklyn? Yeah, Aldi Law's really- Have you guys been there? Yeah. Oh, I, I love I, that place. Um, I, had a friend, I had a friend who worked there for, for, for a while. It's a great mm-hmm. place, too. It's- uh, well, Is it northern or southern Italian? I think, I think it's northern, but I could yeah, be wrong. Yeah, it's regional Italian cuisine. It's really, really good. That's the thing I like about Italian. Like, when you really get into, like, the- Really get into the cuisine when you go to the, the different regions and diff, different styles. It's really, it gets really, really good and really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Rather than like like the generic Italian food, you know, yeah, that you, yeah. that you could sometimes get. Right. I mean, much like you know, Asian food, like right. Chinese food in you know, New York, for example. Well, I, actually, that's not true. I, I think there are actually lots of interesting pockets of Chinese food in restaurants in New York. Yeah. More so even than on the West Coast. Um. But you know how like Americanized Chinese food is, you know, n- not nearly as good as you know actual yeah. Chinese food. Uh, well, same same deal with Italian. I feel like it gets kind of generalized yeah. and flattened out. That's kind of an American thing. Is I think it's just kind of flatten out food. I mean, even like when you have mm-hmm. barbecue here in New York, it's a, like it's just so not Southern food in, in New York is like really flattened. Like mm-hmm. I was in um, North Carolina a year and a half ago, and there's a restaurant down there, and I wish I remember the name, and it has the best shrimp and grits I've ever had. And like I've never had a shrimp and grits up here in New York that's even came close. Like it's it's BS. Like it's mm-hmm. BS. Not but at down, Amy Roots, huh? You know I love Amy Roots. Their shrimp and grits are good though. I don't uh-huh. think they're. I haven't great. had that there. They, they're they're not they're not as good. Like this shrimp mm. and grits down there was like because they had this like they, they cook it in this um I won't say it's not a salsa it's a whatever it's like a salsa it's mm-hmm. like it's so good you put it with there it's just sweet. You know, actually, I do have one funny Indian food story because uh, a good friend of mine, he's um, he's Pakistani and we uh, I wrote a we co-wrote a play. And uh, I remember uh, I used to eat very Indian food, very generically, very Americanized. Mm-hmm. And then I was in England with my friend and I went to his family and they were like, OK, here's the deal. We don't Americanize our food. So you're going to have to kind of like live up to our uh, our spice level. And and after like two days of eating with his family, I went to that spice level to now when I go to places, I'm like, you need to kick it up. <laughs> you need to kick it up, man. Like this is and they look at me like, really? You want to go there? I'm like, please <laughs> like do it. Yeah. Uh, I guess it was a couple of nights ago. I had a friend over for dinner. He's a law school friend, a uh, white dude. And I was um, it was just I was gonna have dinner here so i made some japanese curry you know curry out of a box Mm. this was medium hot yeah and i I tasted it i'm like this is like i can't even tell there's between just the medium or the mild i'm gonna put a little red cayenne pepper on it and then i heat and he's like oh man it's too spicy man (laughs) (laughs) i live off cayenne pepper and i'm not that japanese curry can't be hot in fact the hottest curry i ever had was it it was like there's this very popular curry chain in um japan called koko ichibanyo Mm-hmm. I was in Seoul. There was like a whole bunch. I went there. And they have like, you know, like the sp- spice salves. I swear, I got like a three and it was so hot. I, it was painful to eat. I don't know what they put in there. But I was so surprised because even when I go to Indian restaurant to ask for spicy, it's actually, no, I recently went to a Sri Lankan restaurant that was extremely spicy. But gen- generally speaking, they kind of hold back on it. So I was so surprised that the spiciest curry I've ever eaten was Japanese. Mm, I have never had, I gotta, I gotta have a good Japanese curry. Millie, you got any uh, restaurant recommendations? Like, you, if you really like Indian food, what's a what's a good Indian place in New York? I mean, my favorite is probably Jackson Diner in Jackson Heights. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that's close to where I grew up. Yeah, and that area has great Indian food in general, right? Yeah, I mean, people keep telling me that Jackson Diner is actually not 
very good. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Well, you I, like I think it. it's that's delicious. What, that's what I think like. it's delicious. There's another place like around the corner that people keep telling me about, but nobody knows what its name is. They're like, it has a blue and white awning and it's on, it's not on 74th. It's on 75th. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I will get out there at some point. Um, you know, you have some good Indian right around here. Uh, yeah. I mean, like the Indian two panas. Right yeah. Uh, is that place good? I heard people just go there because the lights are Instagram oh, yeah. worthy. Because of all the Christ- Christmas lights. But the Sri Lankan place I told you about, uh, Sigiri, is right next to it. It's BYOB. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely spicy. If you get their deviled like chicken or deviled anything, be careful. It's extremely spicy, and I can handle my spice. Yeah. But that mm-hmm. that was painful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of Indian places. I really like Chinese food, like anything. Like I love just like going to Flushing and going to you know those food stalls that yeah. are that are kind of behind all these like vinyl curtains and you just go around eating whatever so i, I think chinese has become my favorite which like, growing up there's like this kind of like intra-asian like racism i remember like we we're always like oh chinese food that's like cheap stuff but no seriously like chinese food is great yeah yeah um, my mom grew up in the, in the las so like when we would come down here we would we would go to chinatown and like eating like you know my mom my mom is the kind of person she's like all right are these nothing but chinese people in here mm. then we're gonna eat in here she's like, she's she, she's that kind of person and like she wants like she wants the real stuff so you know i always i've loved chinese food that's why i never was able to eat like you know americanized like real takeout stuff too much yeah in chinatown we like noodle village they have very good wonton noodle soup yeah. their shaolong bao is very good too and so it's just a nice nice place you yeah. know yeah, there's a. Uh, I went to this place called T- Tasty Hand Pulled Noodles, oh, so yeah. called because oh, it wasn't that's very good? what they serve. It, no, it was great. Oh, okay, all right. Super well, cheap. Oh, also, down. there's um XO Kitchen where we went to. Oh yeah, yeah, ago. I like that place. The, their dumplings are huge. That was good. Yeah, yeah. they are making me hungry. Uh, I know, yeah. right? Well, maybe it's a good place to end the pod. Then. <laughs> nice <laughs> positive note. Nice positive yes. note. <laughs> Celebrating food and um, diversity and all that shit. Yes. All right, so uh, Millie and Tumi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for and, having uh, me. Thanks for listening, and thanks, we'll be Oxford. back, I um, guess, in a few days with a bonus pod and next week with a, another free one. So bye, everyone. Peace. Peace.